Well, amen. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series on the life of David. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been walking through um, this sermon series throughout our summer called David, a man after God's own heart. And over the past few weeks, what we have seen is our giant slaying shepherd boy go from being a national war hero to a fugitive on the run. We have seen him at his very best, and we have seen him at his very worst. Now this morning, we come to to a, a, a section of scripture where David is going to finally be anointed and appointed king. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. And this all takes place after King Saul is put to death. And so what we know about David and what we've looked at over the past several weeks is this. David's life was a life of triumph and a life of tragedy. He experienced many great moments, and he experienced many tragic moments. Our focal passage last week was 1 Samuel 25. We read the story of Abigail and, David, and, and Nabal. And I hope this week you found yourself being more like Abigail, responding, instead of like David overreacting. Um, Sunday evening, um, my family and I, we were playing phase 10 or spades. We were playing some card game. And I don't know what happened, but I think somebody did me wrong. And so I overreacted. And my kids and, and my other kid, Brindley over here, all of them said, you're overreacting. And so that was both a dagger to my heart, and it was also a moment of encouragement because I know that, or at least they uh, um, listened to a portion of that message. And so that's a good thing. So they at least listened to that part of the message. And so I pray that all of us in this room will, will learn to be responders instead of reactors. Now, following 1 Samuel 25, we come to chapter 26, and here we find David once again having an opportunity to kill King Saul. But he held back. He didn't do that. He didn't overreact. He didn't um, say to himself, by killing Saul, that means I will become king today. He didn't do that. He waited upon the Lord. And then we see David's life take another tragic turn. Right after David shows faith and demonstrates faith, what David is going to do is David is going to turn and become a man on the run again. again, And he's going to go into the city of Gath. You remember who was from Gath, right? Goliath. The giant Goliath was from Gath. And so David is going to leave Israel, and he's going to go into the Philistine stronghold to the city of Gath, and eventually he'll go to the city of Ziklag, and he'll take up residence there. The last time David showed up in Gath, he was a man on the run. He had lost everything in his life. He had lost his position. He had lost his wife. He had lost his friend. He had lost um, his mentor, Samuel. And he also, while there, lost his dignity. You remember um, what happened in 1 Samuel 21? Um, David would act like a madman before the king. It says, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Literally, David in the presence of the king, last time he was in this place, acted like a madman. He was foaming at the mouth. 
And now David goes from once again demonstrating great faith to becoming a man on the run, and he goes into the Philistine stronghold. And notice um, about David's life again. It was one of ups and downs, great highs and great lows, great victories and, and piercing defeats. How many of you can say that your life at times have been up and down? You've had great moments and poor moments, great moments of faith and great moments of rebellion. I think all of us have. And that's David. That's what we are learning through this sermon series, that none of us are perfect. All of us have fallen short. But by God's glorious grace, there is hope for all of us in this room, right? We come to 1 Samuel 27. Okay, David goes into the city, and this is what we read here. It says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will disappear or despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hands. So once again, not one of David's finest moments. You may ask yourself, why is this important this morning? Why is this significant this morning? It's significant because the Lord has provided shelter and protection for David since the moment of his birth, right? David was a man of promise, and he was a man with a purpose. And I want you to know this morning, every single one of us in this room, we are men and women of promise, and we are men and women of purpose. God has set all of us apart and has gifted all of us with everything we need to change the world. David was set apart to draw the nation of Israel back to the heart of God. Guess what you were set apart to do and I was set apart to do? We too were set apart to bring the nations back to the heart of God as we go out and be the hands and feet of Christ and preach the good news of salvation to those that we come in contact with. So, instead of waiting on the Lord within the land of promise, David becomes a man on the run again and goes into the Philistine stronghold, and he waits until the death of Saul. And that is what is going to happen. Saul has been killed in battle. David gets word of this. And I want us to see this morning this life of triumph and this life of tragedy that would be on display in David's life. The first thing that we see is we see David pray. Immediately, David turns to prayer. And we read in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 2. So if you want to turn there with me, 2 Samuel chapter 2. Okay, we're going to find ourselves this morning reading some passages in chapter 2, chapter 3. Three, and then we'll skip over to chapter 5. So let me encourage you to, in order to kind of stay up with where we're at in this study, to just go back and read basically from um, 1 Samuel chapter 25 up until where we're at um, this morning. And that will kind of give you an idea of where David has been and what he's been doing. So 2 Samuel chapter 2, in verse 1, we read these words. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up? Into any of the cities of Judah. And the Lord said to him, Go up, David. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David is in Ziklag. The king is dead, and now it is time for David to become king. 
And I love this about David here. Instead of overreacting, instead of rushing into the land, David immediately turns to prayer. He prays. He inquires of the Lord. He says, and we read here, that he inquired of the Lord. Our overreactor is turning to the Lord this morning, and he is seeking his counsel. David knows that the biggest moment of his life is about to happen. He is about to be crowned king within Israel. And so he immediately turns to the Lord and he begins to pray. Now notice the difference between what we read here in 2 Samuel chapter 2 compared to what we read a second ago in 1 Samuel chapter 27. In chapter 27 verse 1, we read of David. Then David said in his heart. Okay, what does that mean? David took upon his own himself, acted upon his own um, desires, and saw his own way out, and he responded with his heart. He said, okay, the king is after me, and so the only hope I have is to go into Gath. Did he pray there? No. He responded in his heart. How often do we make heart decisions instead of faith decisions? How often do we make heart decisions instead of turn to God and pray? David would make a heart decision in chapter 27 of 1 Samuel. And here we see David pray and inquire of the Lord. And notice the answer that we get here. Okay, David prays. He inquires of the Lord and asks, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. The Lord has given David permission to go into Judah, into um, the land, to become king of the land. For most of us, that would have been enough. Okay, for most of us, just hearing the Lord say, go, we would have fled out of the land of the Philistines and we would have gone into the city of promise, right? Or into the nation of promise. I mean, imagine it like this. Let's say that, that um, you are a native Texan, okay? And, and man, let's just be spiritual here and say that God has called you out of the land of promise and he's called you to some other state. Let's pick New York, Okay. To Michigan, Bill says back there, okay? And the Lord calls you to Michigan, all right? And you, you, you go to Michigan, and you stay there for a while, and then all of a sudden, the Lord gives you permission to return back to Texas, okay? For Bill, or for any of us, knowing that Texas is the promised land, we would have immediately loaded up the U-Haul and hightailed it right back to Texas, Okay? And then we'd come to the border of Texas, and then we'd be like, oh, man, where am I supposed to go in Texas? Texas is a big state. Do I go to Dallas? Do I go to Allen? Do I go to San Antonio? Where do I go? But David, he doesn't just go into the land of promise, does he? I love this. David seeks confirmation. David said to the Lord, pray, to which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. David did not just want to go anywhere. He wanted to go exactly to the city that the Lord wanted him to go. How often do we overreact? How often do we act like David one moment and, and we kind of say with our heart that this feels right. Man, this feels good. This feels like the thing that I need to do. Instead of stopping 
and praying and inquiring of the Lord and seeking his will and his wisdom for our life. Epi Meyer wrote these words, the great tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. I'm guilty of that. So often I overreact. I act out of my heart instead of seeking the Lord in prayer. I read a story the other day about a man who encountered a bit of trouble while he was out flying his Cessna. He called the control tower and said, pilot to tower. I'm 300 miles from the airport. I'm 600 feet above ground, and I am out of fuel. I am descending rapidly. Please advise over. And after a few moments, the tower called back to the pilot and said, tower to pilot. Repeat after me, our Father who art in heaven. Dave, have you ever want to say that to somebody? <laughs> if we want to be the change agent we know God wants us to be in this world, then we must learn to turn to the Lord more. We must be people of prayer seeking the will of the Lord. Prayer changes our lives. Prayer changes the lives of others. Prayer can change our nation. Prayer can change our world. You know, I'm reminded of the story of, of Jeremiah Lamphrey, who in 1857, as a 46-year-old man, felt called by the Lord to go into New York City to um, become a missionary. And so he went into New York, and he began sharing the gospel with people. He walked up and down the streets every single day, passing out tracts and sharing the gospel. And he realized that he wasn't having much success to doing that. And so he turned to the Lord and he prayed. And he said, Lord, um, what would you have me to do? And the Lord told him to begin a prayer meeting. And so he began a prayer meeting. He, he, he said, once a week on Wednesday from 12 to 1, we're going to pray. And so he hit the streets again. He passed out flyers inviting people. He put up posters all over the city inviting people to come to this prayer meeting. And what ended up happening is on that first Wednesday, he got down on his knees in an empty room and he began to pray at 12 o'clock. No one else was in that room. After 30 minutes, five people showed up and they all began to pray. The next week, about 10 people showed up. The next week, about 30 people showed up. And before long, Ministers from other churches had joined in on this weekly prayer meeting and they had began to pray. And then that weekly meeting turned into a daily time from 12 to 1. And it spread all across the nation. Thousands of people placed their faith in Jesus Christ because F or because Jeremiah Lamphrey was committed to prayer. Prayer can change the world. Jeremiah Lamphrey was 46 year old man that felt insignificant within the kingdom of God. However, God took this one man who felt insignificant and used him to see thousands of people place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There was a time when David felt insignificant as well. Thankfully, he learned to trust in the Lord, and thankfully, he would allow the Lord to use him to change the world. Notice our next point here. We come to David's appointment, to the moment where David is going to be anointed king. What we'll see this morning is we will see David anointed king twice. Actually, he has been, he will be, he had been anointed three times. First time was by Samuel. 
The next time is when he goes into the city of Judah, and the next time is when he becomes the king of Israel. And we'll look at both of those anointings and appointments this morning. Notice 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 2 through 7, we'll read these words. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahoniam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now, the may, now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David would go to Judah, to the city of Hebron, and there he would be anointed king and appointed king. So finally, this teenage boy that had been um, anointed by Samuel is a 30-year-old man, and he is standing before the people of Judah. And here he is going to receive his throne, he is going to receive a crown, and he is going to get to lead the people of Judah. Notice though, David did not get the entire nation here. He gets one sliver of the nation. He gets one tribe of the 12 tribes. He gets the tribe of Judah. And this tells us um, a couple things from the very beginning of David's reign. It tells us first here that, that this was a divided kingdom. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Abner, the commander of Saul's army, would appoint the throne to Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons. So David gets one tribe, and Ishbosheth gets 11 tribes. Doesn't sound fair, does it? Ishbosheth was never anointed king. He was never to be king. In fact, it was, it was said very adamantly that Saul had lost the, the right to, to have a successive kingdom. Generally, Kingdoms are passed down to heirs. But Saul, because of his disobedience, that was stripped from him. But here this is, one of Saul's commanders appoint this man to be the leader, the king of the 11 other tribes. Continue reading in verse 10. Ishbosheth's son, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron was over over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. You know, I think it's, it's encouraging here to see that David never once complains about not given, being given the entire kingdom. He never once cries out to God and says, why? He never has a pity party. He just simply rules out of obedience the people that God had given him to lead. And Scripture tells us that during David's reign in Hebron, his house would grow stronger, and Saul's house would grow weaker. What was the difference between the two kingdoms? One was living within God's calling, and the other was not. 
For seven and a half years, David would live within God's calling within Hebron, and God would bless David and make him into a great leader, a great commander, a, a great ruler, and the people followed him. Okay? So David did well in that area of his life. But you know what? David did miserable in another area of his life. It would be, notice David's house, okay? So you had a divided kingdom while David was in Hebron, and you would also have a divided house while David was there as well. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, we read these words. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinam of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliam of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, the third, Absalom, the son of Maka, the daughter of Tamai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonai, the son of Haggith, the fifth, please don't name your kids this, okay? Please. Because it would be real hard for me to baptize them having to pronounce these names, okay? Um, so I'm butchering these. I hope not too bad, but you get the point. Um, and then we got Shephatai, the son of Abital, the sixth, Ethram of Igla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Six children would be born to David while he was in Hebron. That's a good thing, right? Children's a good thing. They're a blessing from the Lord. But notice this, okay? David would get, have six children there by six different wives. That is polygamy. That is not biblical. We see it in Scripture. God may have allowed it, but God never approves of it. David would have, over the course of his lifetime, at least seven wives, 20 sons, one daughter, numerous concubines. This element of his life would plague him during his latter years of life. Moses had instructions for the future king of Israel. And he had made it very, very clear from the very beginning that the king was to rule his house well and, and made it very clear that he was to be the husband of one wife. It says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses penned these words from the Lord. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. David broke the law of the Lord when he took himself for himself more than one wife. And it would certainly destroy his household. We know that David became stronger and stronger and stronger while he was within the city of Hebron. While he led the people of Judah. But his home would become weaker and weaker and weaker. There would be a destruction that would happen ultimately within his home. In, in his book, One Life, a gentleman by the name of Christian Bernard, he, he um, performed the first open heart transplant, our first heart transplant successfully. Okay? In, his, in his book, One Life, he penned these words. He, he was from South Africa. But he worked and lived part of the time in America. And, and we read these words in, in um, his book. In New York, I put the car on a boat and caught a plane for South Africa at Cape Town. A northwest wind was blowing and we came in over the sea with the waves close below. My wife was there with the children. I had written little in the last two months, yet I was unprepared for a greeting. Why did you come back? 
Why didn't you stay in America and never come home again? There was no longer a a smile in her eyes, and her lips seemed to wait for nothing. Oh God, I thought, I've made the most terrible mistake of my life. Don't look surprised, she said. We gave you up. We decided you were never coming back. It was only a little delay, I said. I wrote you about it. We were building valves, aortic valves. She said, you were also building a family. I mean, once upon a time you were building one until you dumped it into my lap. We have ceased to exist for you. I, want, I wanted to say that I came home because I loved my children and I believed I loved her. I did it because I felt it. What could I say now that would not sound meaningless? It began to rain. The city was gray under a gray sky. It was winter in Cape Town, and in Minneapolis, spring was already there. How was it possible to lose a whole springtime? What a tragic testimony that is. We can get everything right in the world, but if we fell in our home, then what does that say of us? David was a great king, a great leader of the people, but he felt miserably within his home. May that not be said of us. Okay, here's the deal. If it is being said of us today, it's not too late to start anew. It's not too late to get this thing called parenting right. Whether your kid is five years old or 55 years old, you still can lead them well and point them to God the Father. Or get reconciled if that needs to happen as well. Notice our final point this morning is this, David's kingdom. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, um, beginning in verse 1 through 5, we read of how David is finally given the throne. He's finally given leadership over all of Israel. Here we see David being anointed and appointed king over all Israel. We see this amazing picture in Scripture of the entire nation of leaders rallying around David and affirming him as God's appointed leader. Notice um, our first sub-point here. Notice David's relationship with the people. In verse 1 we read, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are bone and flesh. We are your bone and flesh. The nation of Israel surrounds their, themselves around the lordship of King David. They acknowledge him as their sovereign leader. And I can't help but recognize the connection we have to Jesus when we surrender our lives over to him. We acknowledge Jesus at the moment of our salvation as being the Lord of our lives, right? He is King Jesus. He is Lord of our lives. We are subject to him. We bow before him. We are led by him. And and we see this picture of, of the people of Israel come to David. And David is their supreme leader. Jesus is our supreme leader, isn't he? When we surrender our lives over to Jesus and we cry out to him to be the Lord and Savior of our lives, we are committing to being soldiers in his army. We are committing to be be ambassadors within his world. 
We're committing to be his hands and his feet. We get to speak the truth of his word to other people. When we come to Christ, we experience his glorious grace. We are saved, not because of anything we did, but because of the work Christ did for us. We are saved by grace, but understand this, we are saved unto good works. David was saved by God's glorious grace unto God's glorious work. He was chosen to lead the nation of Israel and to turn the nation of Israel back to God. So have we been chosen and set apart to do the work of ministry for the Lord. We've looked at this before. Every one of us in this room are ministers of the gospel. I may be a pastor. I may have the privilege of shepherding this church, but I'm a minister of the gospel. As all of us in this room are ministers of the gospel, we all do the work of ministry. We were all set apart at the moment of our salvation unto good works to become Christ's hands and to become his feet. Notice David's leadership before the people. In times past, when Saul was king over us, the people say, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. The people recognized in David a fierce warrior who had ruled them and represent them well. They knew David would go before them into battle. They knew that he would represent them well, unlike Saul. In fact, from the very moment in the early days of David's life, before he ever slayed Goliath, this was spoken of him in 1 Samuel 16, 18. One of the young men went to King Saul and spoke these words. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. The Lord is with David. May the Lord be with all of us as well. We know he's with us. Okay, if we're believers, but may we tap into the power source that is the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling within us and do the work that he has set us apart to do. And then we see here the appointment, okay? And, and the, the, the elders continue to say, And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. David would go from shepherding sheep to shepherding the people of God. You know, we too are sheep, aren't we? Jesus is our shepherd. In fact, he referred to himself as the good shepherd. He is our shepherd. He is our leader, and we follow after him. And then we see the anointing in, in verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. What's amazing about this is not only did the elders come before King David, but we're told in, 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 in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 that 340,000 soldiers also came and rallied around David, recognizing him as their leader and recognizing him as their king. You know, all of us in this room have the opportunity to make a difference in this world. All of us in this room have the opportunity to be godly leaders, be godly leaders over those that we work with or those that we work for, godly leaders within our home, godly leaders within our church, godly leaders within our community. What does a godly leader look like? Leaders are chosen by the Lord and they are affirmed by others. 
okay? All of us in this room are leaders, okay? And when we lead well, there's going to be people that are following us. Leaders also look like the Lord and represent the Lord. They're allowing themselves to be transformed into the image of Christ. They're allowing themselves to become little Christ. In Romans 12, 2, Paul wrote these words, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't conform to this world. David, whenever he said in his heart, I must go over to Gath, was conforming to the world. But whenever he said, inquired of the Lord, that's when he was allowing himself to be transformed by the Lord and obediently respond to the Lord and went into the nation of Judah. In 1 Samuel 10, 6, um, I read this this week, and I shared this with our group on, on, on Wednesday night during our Wednesday night Bible study, but I've read this passage of Scripture over and over, okay? But this is the moment that Saul has been appointed king, okay? Saul, we know, was not the best king. He made many mistakes. He would receive the Holy Spirit at the moment that he was anointed king, but that spirit would be taken from him whenever he disobeyed God. But in 1 Samuel 10, 6, we read these words, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. I love that. Be turned into another man. You know what happens when we become believers in Jesus Christ? We become another man. Or we become another woman. We become another student. We are transformed into his image. And that's what leaders do. They allow themselves to be transformed into the image of the Lord. And also notice this. Leadership is hard and godly leaders are under the attack of the enemy. How many of you have ever been attacked by the enemy? All of us have, right? All of us have been attacked by the enemy. When we lead well, the enemy is going to do everything that he can to try to destroy us. John 10.10, the thief can still kill and destroy. Satan is out to destroy us. Okay, He is out to destroy our homes. There is nothing that makes Satan happier than when we get our home life wrong. When we parent wrong or we, are we child wrong, Satan is out to destroy our homes. He is also out to distract us from our devotions. You know, there's nothing more that Satan loves than when we become too busy for God. Satan is going to do whatever he can to distract us from our daily devotions. He is also going to try to divert us, to divert our attention from what is most important, which is kingdom work. And he is going to try to disqualify us morally, to get us to compromise morally. And he also is going to try to get us to doubt God's goodness to doubt even our own salvation. Satan is a liar. He is a thief. And he is out to destroy us. I love Ephesians chapter 6, where we are instructed by Paul. He penned these words that the Lord had given him to put on the armor of God. But I want to read just the first part of Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 13. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in, withstand in the evil 
day and having done all to stand firm. You and I are at war. It is a spiritual war. It is a war for our hearts and our souls, and it is a war that is happening out in this world. Satan is out to destroy us. He's out to destroy our families, and he's out to destroy our church, and he's out to destroy our work that we do outside the doors of this church as well as within this church. Folks, here's what we can be sure of. Here's what we are promised of. There is victory in Jesus. When we follow after the heart of God and become men and women after his heart, then we will experience great victories for him. Does that mean that our life is going to be easy, that our life is going to be rosy, that, that man, our bank accounts are going to be full and that our homes are always going to be cheerful? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Okay? It may mean that whenever you commit with your whole heart to follow after Jesus, that your life may actually get harder because Satan is going to attack greater. But guess what? There's freedom as believers. There's freedom that we have in Jesus, knowing that we can persevere to the end. Folks, there's going to come a day when all of us are going to close our eyes on this side of eternity, and we're going to wake up in the very presence of the Lord. That's what we live for. That's what we long for. That's what we hope for. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is, 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 has been found in our salvation, but our hope is knowing that one day we're going to be with Jesus. You may be here this morning, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you were to die today, you don't know where you'd spend eternity. The scripture is real, real clear. All of us in this room, we're going to spend eternity in one of two places, heaven if we're believers in Jesus, or hell if we've chosen not to follow after Jesus and repent of our sins and cry out to him to be the Lord and Savior of our lives. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you to make the greatest decision that you could ever make, and that is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life, that he is saving you from your sins. And by him saving you from your sins, you're acknowledging him as king and lord and ruler of your life. If you don't know Jesus, you come this morning. You may be visiting this church for a while and the Lord is leading you to make friendship your church home. We'd love for you to do that. You may be here this morning. You need to just, where you're at, either kneel or come to this altar and kneel and just pray and ask the Lord to just reveal to you what you need to do with this sermon. Let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And when I say amen, if there's a decision you need to make, you come. You come. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege it is to be in your house. Father, I just pray for each and every person that's in this room. Father, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will speak to our hearts and help us to respond to your Spirit's leading. If you say go, we want to go. If you say wait, we want to wait. But when you say go, Father, we don't want to just be um, okay with go. Lord, we want to know where it is that you would have us to go. So, Father, help us, Lord. Just as David, when you said go, David prayed, okay, Lord, I'm ready to go. Now tell me where I need to go. So, Father, help us to always seek you. Father, I pray this morning that you will just move during this time of invitation. Draw the lost unto yourself. Help all of us in this room cry out to you to be our Lord and our Savior if we haven't done that. 
And Father, just move now during this time of invitation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you come this morning. You come, make the greatest decision that you could ever make. And that is to repent of your sins and to cry out to Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life. You may be here this morning, you've been visiting this church a while, and the Lord's leading you to come. You come. You may need to just pray where you're at. You pray. Just during this time, over the next few minutes, with every head bowed and every eye closed, let's just spend some time praying and asking the Lord to speak to us. If you need to come, you come.